you know, going out there and riding hard on your bike. That's what we love. That's why we're in the sport. We don't want what Julie did to turn this into a freak show, freak show, freak show. Some people I'm sure had funny feelings about it. I know the men did. I didn't really care. It's not, you know, about skin color and, you know, all these other socioeconomic differences. You want your team to win. I'm Celine Yeager. I'm Sarah Gross. This is Nine. Voices for Title IX, powered by Inside Tracker. A podcast that tells the stories behind the law that changed everything. This is Nine. 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 Hey, Sarah. Hey, Celine. Okay, what a great week. We have you interviewing Marianne Martin. And I'm so excited to hear, like, because you have such a long history in cycling as a writer. Um, for Bicycling Magazine and other magazines and as a cyclist yourself. Um, So super stoked. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I actually didn't have a ton of knowledge about this. I knew that there was a women's Tour de France way back when. And I knew that because I have this older cycling friend who he got, he had a son later in life. He was like 55 years old. And he really you know, everyone's like, well, what if you have a daughter? He's like, well, there's still a women's tour de France. Like he was an old, you know, roadie from the day. So oh, just like, based on off an offsite comment. That's how you knew about the yes. women's tour de France. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I have a vague, I had a vague knowledge of that too, but I had just no idea about it at all. Yeah. That's the, that's the first time I had heard of it. I was like, oh, wow. okay. That's kind of cool. And, um, you know, Marianne Martin was the first winner of that. And, it ran alongside the men's race from 1984 to 1989 and then uh, then fizzled out. And there were, you know, there were many sort of attempts to re- rejuvenate it and bring it back, but resurrect it. But it never really uh, it never really gained any traction. You know, they had a one day and a two day and look course. And so it's interesting that we have this interview now because this year there is a an actual women's tour de France returning. Uh, it will start the 24th of this month. And it was, it will only be an eight day race as opposed to the 18 stages that Marianne did back in 1984. So, you know, it's, it's still uh, a little short of what I think we're looking for. And I think that a work it in is, progress. yeah, it is a work in price, a constant work in progress. <laughs> but you know, one of, one of the things that Marianne talks about you know, because we talk about this quite a bit in the show, like, what, what is it, you know, with, with Title IX and with the series, you know, we've talked a lot about, like, progress, like, real progress and, and things that have happened, but in these, in these sports, especially cycling, which is so rooted in very male-dominated European tradition, like, mm-hmm. Title IX just hasn't touched that sphere, you know, right. in a way that a lot of these other things has, you know, she mentions in the interview that, that perhaps, you know, she had more opportunities to be sporty or athletic, you know, because of Title IX that then, you know, because she was a runner and, you know, there were other things in her life, but it wasn't like there was this direct impact on her that, that she could feel tangibly. And you can see in the sport that we're still, you know, we're still trying to push this culture forward in it. And, and I'm hopeful, you know, that it should be exciting to watch this eight-day stage the women racers are very excited about it and they do have what the pieces that they need like 
a really strong title sponsor, like Zwift is a very strong sponsor, Amazing. right? Yeah. Yeah. And because it's going to happen after the men's tour, mm -hmm. the, I think that you'll have more eyeballs on it because there's this thing that happens, you know, everybody gets very excited about the tour. They watch it every day and you know, they stream it. It can stream it on so many things now. And then there's like this tour hangover, this letdown when it mm -hmm. stops. So I think there will be a many people still excited to be able to be like, Oh, Hey, the women's race is starting. So fingers crossed, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, first of all, I'm, I am very excited to see a women's, even the eight day, like you have to celebrate the the small wins you know mm -hmm. and like you said like previously have been previous um i don't know, say previous renditions of like a women's event that have just like come and gone come and gone. shadows of <laughs> renditions really yeah. I mean, it's just like a one-day circuit race in paris is uh, yeah not it yeah <laughs> yeah so better than a one-day circuit race in paris <laughs> which was i think the most recent addition of adding of adding women to the tour de france so yes definitely excited about it but it does it is a very I think what's happening with the tour is a very interesting mark of where we are as like sports in general and women's and, and creating equal opportunity for women. And like what I what I mean by that is that you have like, you know, you have some sports that are newer, like CrossFit, right, where there's like first of all, there's a lot of, there's a lot of heavy lifting and stuff like that in CrossFit things that like traditionally women were never considered capable of. Right. And yet you have this amazing sport that's, that's come up that has equal prize money, equal opportunities for sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera, because of the date of its birth, <laughs> you know, it's like right. able to offer those opportunities. Right. And then you have, like I saw on, um, you know, we both know Catherine Bertin, who's been mm -hmm. a big advocate for women's equality in, in cycling. And I, she shared a post yesterday on her Instagram that I saw that was like literally an argument some guy arguing that of course, like the women, of course they're going to do shorter distances and they're going to do, you know, like you literally have people kind of believing still in this throwback way that women oh. aren't, aren't <laughs> physically capable of I chewing, can't even, you know, <laughs> I know, I know. And so women are I, literally <laughs> beating men in race across America, like, on, right. like, like Leah Goldstein literally won outright, like, mm -hmm that's across the United States. They can do the distance. They can do right. these things. Yes. Right. Isn't it wild how like you can have these pockets of people living in the same era who are on one hand, like, you know, one, one hand you have women going out and winning the race across America outright. And then on the other hand, some people still believing that, we, that women can't do it, you know, we so can't make it up out to us. <laughs> women can't yeah. do that. And I yeah. think like, that's where we are, <laughs> you know, that that's, that's unfortunately and unfortunately where we are. And, and I think as time goes by, everybody will kind of catch up to the fact that like women are like extremely capable of all kinds of physical endeavors. And we will continue to improve as, as women broadly in every sport. It is going to take, I mean, and that's, what's so interesting about this interview and where cycling still is now, you know, she accepted, Marianne accepted that like she wasn't going to get paid, you know, mm. that, that, that she just about went broke. Like that was kind of, she just kind of accepted that. And, you know, even though there's pushback, women are still like, there are a lot of PhD brilliant, you know, women coming from wall street and all this, like who are making nothing, you know, mm -hmm. to race, to race their bikes and still doing it mostly for the love and, and to maybe hopefully get you know, it out, like make progress, but it, it, this one is moving at a glacial pace. And I would, I hope it, 
I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always optimistic and I have to be, but like, I do hope that with increased exposure and the same kind of coverage. And I think that's really key. Like if you watch any sport that is filmed well, it is more exciting than a sport that it has like B-level people on the camera, right? Totally. Yeah. You know, and, and I think people miss that. Like, cause mm-hmm. you can watch a men's race that is, that is not with the A crew on the camera. And you're like, this is the most boring thing I've ever watched in my life. <laughs> you know, like, cause it's like, it matters, you it know, that kind of matter. coverage matters a lot. Yeah, so. it absolutely does matter. Cool. Okay. So for our audience, if anyone does not know, you know, Celine herself, who does the interview today was a pro mountain biker, you know, is, has dove in with two feet to gravel, still does long distance gravel racing. So like you definitely had on top of what I mentioned earlier, like writing and being in the industry, um, for so many years. So, um, yeah, it comes out in the interview that your love of the sport, you're very connected to it. Excellent. So I hope everybody watches the tour as well as listens to this interview. Female hair loss is a topic few of us want to talk about, but it impacts nearly 30 million women, so we should. And that's why we appreciate that Bonafide's healthy hair and scalp product, Sylvessa, is one of our show partners. With Sylvessa, Bonafide designed the first comprehensive system designed to restore and protect hair and skin affected by estrogen decline from the inside and out. It consists of a three-part system containing a daily capsule, hair serum, and skin serum to be combined for healthier looking skin and hair. During a 12-week clinical study, Bonafide found that 92% of women saw improvement in hair volume, 82% saw improvement in hair thickness, and 67% saw improvement in scalp coverage. Over 8,300 uncompensated doctors in the U.S. recommend Bonafide's products. All of their products are prescription and hormone-free. And for listeners today, we want to give you 20% off your first purchase of Sylvessa and or any of Bonafide's products when you subscribe to any product. Just go to hellobonafide.com slash title9 and use the promo code title9. That's hellobonafide, B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E dot com slash title9 and the code title9, all caps, T-I-T-L-E and the number 9 for 20% off at checkout. For the best prices and free shipping, go directly to the hellobonafide.com slash title9 website. That is their best offer anywhere. So check it out and use the promo code title9 today. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker to your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. That's insidetracker.com 
forward slash feisty. Well, Marianne, it is really great to meet you here. I am aware of you and I have heard of you and we have some mutual friends. Um, But this is the first time I'm actually talking to you. So thank you for being here with us. Oh, thank you for having me. This is fun. I I always love to get information out to women. Yeah, yeah. And we still have some work to do, as I'm sure we'll talk about. So let's, um, let's start actually talk about your history as an athlete a bit, because, you know, I know you grew up in a small town and your dad was a doctor. And then there was some dancing and running, but like, you know, tell me a little bit about how you got into athletics and especially then cycling. I, I just grew up a really active child. I mean, my dad was into doing things. I started riding a bike to get around as soon as I can remember and started going on adventures on my bike as soon as I could admit, as soon as I can remember. And just always wanted to be doing something I don't have any hand-to-eye coordination. Ball sports were not in my future, but I was a cheerleader. And then when that was over, I started running. I started to gain weight after cheerleading. So I started running and then I pretty much ran through college and until, and, until I hurt my back and was started cycling. How did you hurt your back? Skiing. Oh. Yeah, silly. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess it was a good turn of events for me. And then you just picked up a bike because you're like, I have to do something. And the bike didn't seem to hurt. Pretty much. Also, my sister was involved in a bike race in Michigan, a team thing and said, oh, why don't you come on our team? You know, so I started riding my bike and, you know, thinking about it. And then she found somebody else. So I signed up for a race here. The guys at the bike shop said, oh, you should race. You, you know, so that I signed up for a race here and I did pretty well. So I thought, oh, this is fun. And how old were you at that point? 21, maybe. So, so before that, um, you know, you were born in 1957, is that correct? So you would have been a teenager when Title IX came through, you know, which is the the crux of, of this, this show. Was it at all on your radar at that point? Like, did you hear people talking about Title IX? Were you aware that it was happening? Did it impact you in any way? Or were you just a teenager? You know, I, I do remember hearing about it, whether it was when that started or at some point. I mean, I was aware of what Title IX was. And I don't know how it impacted me and to the extent that maybe some of the activities I did in school were because of it. So, I mean, there weren't a lot of activities for women when I grew up, but there might not have been anything had Title IX not happened. Yeah, no, that's fair. And you didn't play collegiate sports either, correct? So you wouldn't have uh, been aware of it there. Yeah. Because they're mostly ball sports, really. Yeah, yeah, they are. So once you found cycling, what was your career like? Did you, you know, you had that first race were you like, this is it and off we go. Then the Tour de France awaits, even though you don't know about that yet. Or like what, how was that start of your career when you were a, a neo cyclist? When I first, when I did my first race and people, and I did well, so people came up to me and said, oh, you should join our team, blah, 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 barbecues, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I'm like, I want to do barbecues and parties and stuff like that. And even at the time I didn't want to race, I just said, well, I'll 
you know, I'd like to ride with you guys, but racing was, I didn't think of myself as a competitive person. Racing was a little bit much, but you had to race pretty much to be part of the team. And, and it was fun because it was part of the team and it was more of a group effort. That first year I was more, it was so overwhelming to me that I just wanted to be part of the group. And then, and then I got better. I mean, then when I won a race, I thought, Ooh, I like this. So I, that kind of hooked me. What kind of races were you doing? The first one was an uphill and that was what I was, that was my strength. There was, it was mostly road races in Colorado because the, the logistics of having a criterium closing down streets, finding the place for it were limited. And at the time they were really scary for me too. Until you, you know, and then you, you start learning and you get really comfortable on your bike and a criterium is super fun, but it was mostly road races and time trials, which I hated. Why did you hate time trials? Cause you're just out there hurting. Whereas I like the strategy of it. I like watching who's doing what, knowing who's in the pack, paying attention to, oh, I know she's a good sprinter, or I know I can kill her on the hills. And the, the whole thinking about it was, was a huge part of it for me too, as opposed to like running, you just get out there and run, but cycling had a whole lot going on with it. Yeah. And for people in our audience who don't know what a criterium is, can you just describe that? That's where you go around and around and around and around and around, but like a closed circuit. Right. Right. Whether it's out on streets, whether it's, uh, you know, just around a block or kind of doing a circuitous around a town, a develop, a housing development sometimes as they're building in the close in the streets are closed. They're not really open. There was a lot of times that where they're building it and there was no traffic yet. So it was, it's a little bit hard to find a place to do that, but it's more exciting for the, for the onlookers because they see us going around. They see that it's fast. There's people crashing, people moving around. It's way more exciting for a pedestrian to watch road races. Not so much. Yeah. And it is a little more harrowing or it can be because it is so fast and there are corners and you're all in a bunch. Yeah. So at this point, are you, do you have a job? Are you cycling full time? Like, what does that look like? I did have a job. I worked for the city bicycle program actually. And, uh, so I had to be really efficient with my time as far as when I went out on my bike, I did something specific. I didn't just go la di da, but that was also a combination of, I met, I started working with Andy Pruitt. He was dating my best friend. <laughs> so, and he's a legendary coach for people who do not know. Yeah, he is. And, and he's, yeah, he's so good. And he, he, the biggest thing he taught us, taught me was the value of rest. That's a whole different podcast, but it is changed the whole way I did everything. And he had us taking our pulse laying down and it was the pulse differential. It wasn't just your pulse. So it did become a science for me. And if your pulse wasn't down on a day, you were supposed to go hard. You, you didn't go hard, you know, it meant your body wasn't recovered. And the whole thing about going really hard on a, a bike or any workout 
is you're tearing down your body. And then when it builds back, it builds back stronger. So if you don't let it rest and build back, you're really not maximizing what that, what you did. So he taught us that. And I lived by that and I could see myself get stronger and stronger every, I mean, I could really see the results. So at the same time, also, I met one of the national coaches that lived in Boulder and he invited me to come do some visualization with some of the top riders in, in the country that lived in Boulder. So here I am. I mean, I'm just a neophyte at this point and I'm laying on the floor. We're all doing visualization. And Tim Kelly was the coach's name. And he said, okay, so, I mean, he got us into it relaxing and everything. He said, okay, now picture yourself at the world championships. <laughs> I wanted to start laughing, thinking, seriously? Because I mean, I was so far away from that, but he was so generous to invite me. And just coincidentally, visualization came back into my life a year or two later. And I did that religiously. The guys that were teaching it made a, a custom tape for me that I listened to every morning and every evening for 20 minutes. It's, su it's such powerful stuff. So those two things helped me tremendously. Wow. So what, um, if I can ask, what were, what were you visualizing on your own? What was that custom tape about? So it starts with total relaxation. Like you go through your body and make, you know, tighten and loosen and make sure you're completely relaxed. And then mine was about strength, thinking about feeling your body strong. I mean, it was just walking me through this, you know, feel your body strong, feel the pain and that the pain is good. It means you're working right and helping you look at the things that are hard, but realizing they're not hard, accepting them rather than fighting them, which, okay. So climbing was my skill even before this, and this helped it a lot, but I watched people climbing on their bike and you can tell they're fighting it. And so it's making it worse for them. Whereas when I coach people about riding up hills, if they embrace it and accept it, it's so much easier. So little things like that helped with the visualization and also being science scientific about my training. Those aren't little things. This sounds really advanced to me, actually. Like there's a lot of people who had no psychological work at all for a long time. This sounds, this sounds actually pretty advanced. And also Andy Pruitt, like sort of giving every session a purpose as opposed to, Hey, ride lots, you know? Right. I mean, when we went out on our bike, we had to have a reason. It was, you, you didn't just go out on your bike. In fact, when I quit racing, I wanted, I did want to start coaching and I, I started coaching a couple people and I'd tell them, okay, today is uh, intervals, blah, 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 blah. And then they would go out and do 50 miles with their friends because they wanted to go with their friends and you, they didn't get it. We would never do that. And one of the sayings I always said is the hardest thing about training is not training. You know, your, your friends are all going on this great ride. You really want to go, but you got to do intervals that day or your pulse wasn't down and you can't go that day. That's hard to do. 
you know, going out there and riding hard on your bike. That's what we love. That's why we're in the sport. 100%. That's, that's one of the reasons that I don't race one of many, but like, uh, that is a big sacrifice that I think a lot of people don't appreciate that when you're following the plan and really following it, a lot of that, a lot of that fun time goes away. I mean, there's a purpose to it and it's fun in its own way. Right. But it's, it's different. Right. And, and the other thing too, is because you're on a specific program, you know, the races were usually on the weekend, but if you had to say Tuesday night, I was doing a certain ride and my friends were all going to a birthday party or something. You can't do that because then it screws up your whole week, your whole training. So that's another thing I watch people fall down because they didn't have a schedule. They didn't have a focus as clearly as I, as I felt you needed to. So where were you when you heard there would be a women's tour de France? Like, and at like, are you, how many years are you into your racing? And like, literally, where were you? And did you think, were you excited? Did you think immediately, I want to do that? What was that like? I don't remember where I was. It was in 83. And as soon as I heard it, that's all I wanted to do. I could not believe it. I was just over the top. That is dream come true. I'm going to do that. Nothing else mattered to me. So that was my complete focus from the time I heard it, except I have this blood thing where I get anemic really easily. So I would get to training camp and almost quad, you know, really bump up my intensity for my working out. And I always got anemic and didn't know why. And I would have never found out I had this, but my dad was a doctor. So he had me do all this intense blood work and we found out that's why. So I, it was probably, so training camp was February, March, January, February, March. And I was not doing well at all. And April still not May. I went back East to this big series, big race series. And I, I don't even remember if I was finishing races. I was staying with a good friend of mine and he said, Mernie, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I mean, because it costs cost a lot of money to go back east, New Jersey, all the, you know, four big races and everything. And I said, because it's, it's what I want to do. And I know it's going to get better. And that's another thing is it would have been really easy to give up at that point. But I just, I just kept at it. And then a couple of weeks later, it had started I mean, and at that point I was thinking, okay, I'm going to look for next year to do the tour. I, you know, not this year because I'm not, there's no way I'll turn around that fast, but you know, next year I'll, I'll do it. But I was really religious about my training and really focused and rested and pushed and it started coming around. And I was in a race with a, a few of the national team riders there and I was right there with them. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I'm coming around. I can feel it. So that first tour was that was 84, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, so you, you, did you, did you figure out like what was going on with the anemia? Yes. It's it, it'll still happen today. If I start working out suddenly really fast, I just have my blood cells don't live as long. And so it's easy to get anemic. 
Not a you, not an athlete. Gotcha. But you got on top of it and you were, were you still training with Andy at this point? Andy Pruitt? Mm-hmm. And Andy would help me. It's not like we were working consistently, but he would help me. He helped me understand training and put together a program and understand my body and what I needed to do to maximize my workouts. So then when do you find out, like, how was that selection process for the sort of like, who went, who decided who went, like, how did that happen? Okay. So after that, that race where I, I could feel my strength coming around, a good friend was staying with me and he, he did a whole lot of the national races. So he knew and knew the process better. And there was one spot left on the tour team. And literally this was maybe two weeks before the start of the tour. And he said, you got to drive down there and talk to Eddie B. Eddie B was the national coach for both men and women. And I would have just called him and said, whatever. But he said, no, you got to go down there. And he drove down there with me. And I talked to Eddie B in person and said, I'm really coming around. I know I can do this. I, I, I can feel it. I know I can do this. And I was just really fortunate because there was another woman that, and I, that was supposed to, they were looking at, and he let me do it. The last thing I said to him was, believe me, Eddie, you won't be disappointed. So oh, I, love I was that. really fortunate. <laughs> so then did you go with other women who had been selected as well? Like how many women went on that team? There were six. There was one that was living in France. She was the one that was supposed to win. And I was, I already got, had a ticket to the Olympic trials in Spokane. So I knew I was going there and I just changed my return to go straight from Spokane to New York. And we had, to, we had to get ourselves to New York and then the Federation picked up our flights from New York to France. So I did three of the four Olympic trials and then flew, flew to France. And what was that like? Like how many days was that first race again? And like, did you, were people excited? Were they skeptical? What was it like when you got to France? Uh, it was 18 days over 23 stages. And we, I wasn't, when we first arrived there, I wasn't around other racing people or we were just there. And so I didn't really understand how people felt about it until we started racing. And when you ask about it, some people I'm sure had funny feelings about it. I know the men did. I didn't really care. I was so excited to be there. I couldn't even stand it. I just was in heaven. I mean, first of all, to be in France, second of all, to be racing my bike in France, and third of all, to be riding in the Tour de France. I, I, you know, pinched me. It was so great. And how was it? Did you go off before the men and was it an abbreviated day? It was an abbreviated day because the French didn't think that the women would finish. So we, we would do the last 60 or 70 kilometers of the men's race. So the streets were all closed still as much as they are there. And there were crowds out. As the race went on, my name was painted on the road of the uh, climbs, which that was super fun. And the, the pedestrians, the, the crowds loved it. 
I mean, they were so enthusiastic and cheering. I mean, you could tell they they loved it. And watching the Tour de France is a, a vacation for people. I mean, they camp out along the way and everybody, when you go through these little towns, it's packed with people. Everybody has come out of every store and every window and every house to watch the racers go by. So the whole enthusiasm about cycling in France is amazing. Were you ahead of the, were you in front of the men's race or you, were you coming out behind the men's race? We'd finish about two hours before the men did. Okay. Okay. And how large was the, the Peloton or the group? How many women were in that? There was only 36 women. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was just one team per country. And so we were racing for our country. It wasn't like now where, you know, you're racing for a team. Yeah. like Saxo, yeah. yeah right yeah, right yeah. we were the u.s team and then there was the british team and the german team canadian dutch was it how was it how did you find it was it everything you thought it would be was it harder than you thought it would be was it were you alone or did were you with other women like how did it look because 36 women like i imagine that gets spread out well, the first few stages were pretty flat and pretty fast. And I got third in the first race, which was a surprise to me, but it was also a surprise to our team. And, you know, we were supposed to be working for Betsy. So there was uh, a lot of words passed around that, no, you're not placing because it's up, you know, Betsy is. So when we got to the hills, it, the pack did split up. And two things, I, I wanted, because I was a good climber and my friend that drove me down to the Federation, Steve Tilford was a really good friend of mine, but he never saw that I was good at cycling because I was so anemic. And so I wanted to get the polka dot jersey to show Steve that, look, see, I really am a good climber, but I knew I had to win it by a lot because and our team, Betsy was supposed to win. So if I wanted to say, well, I'm the better climber, I had to win by a lot. So I just went for it. And I got to the top of the climb and I was 10 minutes ahead of the rest of the pack. So I started to slow down because I thought I can't do the, the next 50 kilometers by myself. And, and then I thought, well, I'll just wait for the, for the people to catch me, for the breakaway to catch me. And then it, we'll all go together. But nobody ever caught me. So that's when I thought, wow, maybe I could do pretty well in this race. Which stage was that? I want to say, well, that one was maybe the fifth stage. Like when you get to the mountains. Right. When we got to the yeah. mountains. So at that point, like when these, when does the tide turn and you start saying, okay, like this climber's polka dot jersey is really great, but I think I can wear, do you wear yellow? Do they give you a yellow jersey? And yep. like, when do you decide, when do you take the lead and do you just keep it for the, for the rest of the race? I did. So I had the polka dot jersey for a few days before I went into the yellow jersey. And we were at a, we were at a dinner with the men's team for some reason, the three of us, I had the yellow jersey, Helena Hage had the green jersey and which is sprinter's I forget jersey. Who was in yellow or maybe Helena was in yellow 
And Vincent Bartow said, pointed to Laurent Fignon and said, he's going to win. And that's the first time I remember thinking to myself, and I'm going to win. And I might not have even remembered when I thought of that, if it wasn't for that dinner, because I remember thinking that real strongly to myself, like I'm going to win this race. So that was, I wasn't even in yellow then. So I must've known that I could take the yellow jersey and do that. But. Were there politics? Did you have a, a team? So much. <laughs> a, a team director telling you, no, 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 Marianne, this is not to plan. Well, our team director was, didn't speak English and wasn't really a team director. I'm sure somebody just gave him that position because he did a favor for somebody. So there was a lot of dissension amongst the women and you know how women can be. So there was, there were, <laughs> there was not a lot of team togetherness after that. I, I was not supposed to have done that so that it wasn't really supportive of me being you know moving towards the yellow jersey and unfortunately betsy who was supposed to be winning but wasn't was the only one that spoke french and our team director did not speak english so i didn't really know what was going on like when i had to be pulled for uh dope testing when where i was supposed i mean nothing so I got to know the, the guy that was riding the motorcycle right behind the women's Peloton. And he would translate everything for me. He told me where to go, what to do, what the road was, what the race course was going to be like that day. I mean, he was so valuable to me because I didn't know, I didn't know all that stuff. So at what point do you know you're going to win? I don't think I knew like really no. Okay. I, well, I mean, once you get into yellow, there's a whole lot of pressure. So, and I also felt like, you know, the men, they don't really want to be in the yellow Jersey until near the end, because then they're such a target. And so I remember, I remember feeling really strong, but I knew that anything could happen. I mean, I actually did flat once. And one of the girls on my team, bless her heart, came back and we motor paced back or, you know, we, we, she got me back to the Peloton, but I was worried that something like that could happen because I think I was only three minutes ahead of second place, which you could easily lose with a flat tire or something. So I felt like I had the strength to win, but I was just hoping that I had the luck to win also. What was it like coming into France winning? Well, evidently we went by the Eiffel Tower, but clearly I wasn't looking around. So I was just focused on staying by Helena, who was in second place and making sure that I wasn't around any squirrely riders or anything to crash. So it was pretty breathtaking when you turn that corner and you see the Champs-Élysées down in front of you with no cars on it. I mean, that is an amazing view. And then we went by the start finish line and I heard an American say, go Marianne Martin. So the next time around, and I was just sitting right next to Helena, you know, I wasn't going to let her get away with anything. So next time we came around, I looked over and it was my dad. He'd surprised Aww. me. 
And, and he was never really supportive of my bike racing. So it was very cool that he surprised me and came over there. I turned to Helena and I said, oh, that's my dad. Like she cared at all, but you know, <laughs> I'm so excited. And so I just stayed with her the whole way. And then at the, at the finish, you know, I didn't finish at the front because it, I didn't care about winning that stage. Um, my dad didn't, my dad thought that I didn't win because of that, but <laughs> he didn't know. That's great. <laughs> that was cute. Yeah. Why wasn't he supportive? He is a doctor and he thought I should be a something. I knew I was never going to be a something when I was graduating from college, he was going to give me some money. I said, great dad. Cause I want to buy a racing bike. So he bought me a camera. So I took out a loan for my first racing bike, $600. And I mean, it was great because then I did have a camera and that's what I did when I quit racing. Um, for fun. And then it was years later before I became a professional photographer, but he did give me a nice gift. So I got both. So, so the women's tour de France famously has struggled, right. To gain any kind of traction. It's changed names. It's changed uh, organizers. It's changed formats. It's changed everything. And before it just finally just sort of fizzled away, you know, as a shell of itself. Um, as someone who has that perspective from the inside, like what, why do you think that is? What are your perspectives on that? My thoughts about that are uh, the French are not like the Americans in, in the sense that we promote everything. I mean, you know, Coca-Cola is a sponsor. I mean, it's going to be everywhere and Coke is going to make sure of that. The French aren't like that. They did the Tour de France for men because it was rooted in their being. I mean, it had gone on for so long and it was going to happen whether they made money or not. And I'm sure they made some money. I don't know. But so, so then I'm sure it's out of pressure that they have a women's race, but there was no sponsor. There was no money keeping it going, adding to the, you know, to the excitement and everything. It was more, one more thing for the organizers to do instead of a money-making thing, like we make it in America. So it, it couldn't support itself. And so then they moved it around like with the men's amateur and, you know, you could tell they wanted to keep it, but it just, it didn't have something pulling it. Like in, in America, we have the tight, the sponsors to pull it. The sponsors are going to make sure everybody knows about it. That's to their benefit. They're going to keep it fueled because that's to their benefit. The French don't think that way, or they didn't then. So I mean, that's just my theory, but that's why I think it, it didn't continue. Yeah. And, and speaking of money, you know, I, I've, you, I've read somewhere that you went into debt to fund, you know, this, this bicycling career and my teammates and I often would joke about just another lazy PhD MD bike racer, you know, cause they all have these degrees and these careers and these jobs because it's so hard to make a living off of this sport. And so many do it for the love of the sport. And it sounds like, did you make any money? Like, did, was there prize money? Did you, was there any money to be made while you were racing? No, not really. I mean, now and then, because I wasn't a sprinter, sometimes you could make money in preems. And, and I did, I used to criticize women that did this, but I did enter a race once and just gave it all I could, got a like 
$200 premium and then (laughs) 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 which I, you know, I generally would not do that, but I, I raced because I wanted to race. I, I never expected anyone to pay for me. Just like today, I, I race my horse. I, sure, pay for me to race my horse. I mean, why would somebody pay for me to go ride my bike is how I felt. And I know that they did, and it would have been nice, but that wasn't going to keep me from doing it. I, I figured I've got my whole life to pay off whatever debt I incur because of racing, but I can only race right now. So that was my attitude going forward. And to stay on the national team, you had to do races all around the country. So I had to fly. And I did have a local team that gave me some money and some support, but they were local. So if I raced out of state, it, I, I didn't get any financial support from them. And I, I always raced out of state right? you know, for the national team and better races. How long did you continue in your career well so the next year was it the next year or the year after the next year I got anemic again but I I couldn't pull out of it then I I don't know why I just couldn't pull pull out of it and so I was never fully recovered I could never get my pulse down my pulse differential down for sure and so I was never I mean, I still got selected to race in Europe with the team. I mean, I wasn't doing horrible, but I knew I wasn't doing what I could do. I knew there was something wrong with my body. Of course, I went to doctors and they said, oh, honey, it's stress. It's stress. So just take it easy. Don't even get me started. (laughs) So bad. So bad. And so I finally did quit. I mean, both money wise and just it was too disheartening to not be not be doing what I knew I could do. And so I, I moved to LA. I had to get out of, I had to get out of the environment because that was my life there. And 20 years later, I got an air purifier because I kept getting sick for 20 years. For 20 years, I wasn't super healthy. I got an air purifier. Now I can run, I can work out, I can get anaerobic, I can push myself. I can do just about anything now. Wow. I know it's huge. Wow. So how old were you when you uh, exited the sport and went to LA? Maybe 26. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it, it took a long time for you to be inducted into the bicycling hall of fame, you know, because that it did. That that just happened. Was that just last year? I mean, it literally yeah. it was just like a long time. Um, how did how did you feel about that? Like, how did you feel? Was it were you surprised or were you like, what took you so long? And you know, you you're very clear that all these accomplishments are not something you are, but something you have done, which I think is very interesting. But you know, I'd love you to talk about your perspective of yourself in the sport. Well, I was thrilled and honored when I got inducted. I didn't think, oh my gosh, you should have done that 20 years. You know, <laughs> again, I was just thrilled. And I don't think of that as abnormal to not put it front, and, you know, like try to be in the spotlight. It's just not my personality. I, again, I do feel strongly. It's something I've done. It's not who I, who I am. I don't even like people to know that about me when they first meet me because 
they have people just do put ideas about who you are when you do that. So I didn't care that I that it took that long to get inducted. I don't know why. And I I didn't feel like I needed, you know, one thing is after I won, it would have been great if I could have gotten sponsorship. So money wasn't such a stress, but I never felt like I was any different because I did something because I think every everybody's done something. A lot of people have done something, you know, mothers have raised children. I could never do that. You know, people have done significant things. So I didn't feel that 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 was just something I did. Right, right. No, that, that's interesting. Um, and we did we didn't talk about the fact that you shared the podium with um, with the men's winner. But I, I do want to touch on that because I do think that's that's really cool. Well, it it was cool. I mean, it was just a little bit surreal. And again, I didn't speak French, so I didn't really know what was going on, where I was supposed to be, what I was doing, what was happening. <laughs> no, so it it was very surreal. And, you know, little things like, okay, so I got off the podium and I, I had been there for a long time and then I couldn't find my team. You know, my team had all gone back to the hotel. I didn't even know what hotel we were in. I mean, stuff like that happened. And so I'm walking around behind the leechers saying, this guy comes up to me and says he's some movie producer and he wants to do a movie about me. You know what I'm thinking? Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, which it was true. I mean, I went to LA a couple of times and met with all these writers and stuff, but it was just bizarre that then I, I, after I won, after all these honors and everything, I was just all by myself walking around the bleachers saying, I don't even know where to go. Wow. So, but the men, and you couldn't feel anything there, but three of us, the top three women got invited to the men's party that night at a, at a cabaret talk about bizarre, but I was seated right across from Laurent Fignon and we were kind of at the end of the table and Jane Seymour was his date that night. And she speaks like 30 languages or something. And so she interpreted for us, which was really fun because then I got to talk to him and you could tell he was very kind, but you could tell he did not like the idea of women racing. It, it, it just wasn't comfortable to him. Why do you think? I, you know, what I've read about him since, you know, the quote of women belong in the kitchen and in the bedroom, not out on the bike. He didn't say anything that night, but you could just tell. But I understand it. I mean, this has been there. I do get it, both because it's been, it's got so much history, a men's event. And I think it's great. I think women should be. And I don't think there's any reason women, women, you know, shouldn't be allowed just because it's a men's event historically. But, you know, they then, okay, so they're sharing the spotlight. It, it, and, and maybe that's why they're having it separate this year when they're going to have it. You know, the women's race starts when the men's race finishes. So they're not competing. Maybe that's why. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was because that was going to be my next question. I mean, some of the quotes that I saw from you in Cycling News appear that you're quite excited about the Tour de France for women being, you know, presented by Swift this year. And there's certainly, you know, Catherine 
Bertine has been pushing really hard for this to happen. There's been a big movement. Do you think that we'll get to the point where we see another 18 stage race or are you think we're always going to be in this space of just a shorter condensed women's tour at this point? I don't know because I don't know enough about their thinking, but God, it would be so great. I mean, it, it's amazing to race your bike for a whole month and the women can do it. And I think it would, it would bump up women's racing around the world because there's something to aspire to. I, I do think a lot of that will happen with the week long race. And although it, it won't have, I mean, I don't know what kind of crowds will come out because it was definitely cool when I did it, that they were out on the mountain stages because the mountains roads are closed. So if you want to see the men, you're up there to see the women too. I mean, sometimes I'd be riding up these mountain roads and you could not even see the road until people parted like five feet ahead of you. I don't know if women will get to experience that. So it would be great if they did combine them in the future. I don't know what their reasoning is that they didn't. And I'd, I'd be curious as to find out, but Let's yeah, just- I hadn't even thought about that. That 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 experience is so is so unique, and and they're not going to get to do all those massive mountain passes that you got to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why they think women can't do it. It's just so silly. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. When women are outright winning the race across America right now, and are outright winning some hundred mile running races, it does seem silly is a good word. Right. But let's just hope. But so I, you know, I know as you've mentioned that you are big into visualization. And I'm wondering, like, if you were to help women visualize a future now or or how they can reach their own dreams of potential, like what would you put into their minds to visualize? Well, I think there's two questions there because one is kind of imagining a future for women in general. And then one of them is imagining, you know visualizing themselves in like what I did, whereas I actually used it as a training tool. So which question do you, why don't we do both? What, what, what is your visualization, you know, for what you, where you think women's sport is going and like, how, how do you, what would be your top visualization tip, I guess, for women to, to optimize their goals? Okay. So to take the first question, I, I see what this is going to do. It's going to put women's bike racing on the map. People are going to be aware of it. And because it's sponsored and, and there's the benefit to them to get it out in front of people, that's going to do so much for women's racing. If it can then, if the Federation, if the different organizations can keep it going and, and step up to the plate to do what they need to do. So that's what we have to, we meaning women have to make sure that happens. For visualization, you can't do something you can't imagine yourself doing. So I like that. Women have to imagine themselves being a champion, winning, pushing themselves past what they think they can do. Because, you know, every time you're out there hurting, everybody else is hurting too. And it's just how much you can push through that. So if you can visualize yourself winning, pushing past, I mean, maybe you're just beginning, so you might not be visualizing yourself winning, but to push past, 
push yourself a little bit. Okay. So say you've come off the back before you're going to stay with the pack three quarters of the race. I mean, your goals don't have to be huge, but you have to see yourself doing them or you won't do them. ICD Media's Title IX series is proudly partnered with Velo Rosa. Velo Rosa is a women-owned and operated cycling apparel company that creates mix and match cycling wear to make women feel comfortable, confident, and beautiful. Created by two avid women cyclists, they know the importance of high-performance biking shorts and jerseys that fit a woman's body. It doesn't work to shrink and pink men's gear and expect it to work for women. Bella Rosa believes cycling wear should be fun, comfortable, and visible. You want to be bright and to be bold and be seen. Bella Rosa's collections are designed to mix and match with coordinating kit pieces that allow women to get more mileage out of their cycling wardrobes. New for 2022, a completely redesigned cycling tank, reflective safety tabs on all of their tops, and more long sleeve options for those chilly morning rides. You'll find tons of great reviews on their site from women who love Velarosa gear. Their five-star rated shorts prove that when women try them, they love the fit, particularly the yoga waistband, power leg bands, and the super soft, all black, what stains, chamois. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, cycling is about the community. Join the sisterhood of cyclists that is Velarosa today. Enter FEISTY15, that's all caps, F-E-I-S-T-Y, number 15, at checkout and receive 15% off of order of full-priced cycling wear at VelaRosaCycling.com today. Active women need more protein. And if you're training hard, you need a lot more, like upwards of 100 grams a day or even more. That can be a challenge to get through meals alone some days, so a good protein powder like Neurofi Plus from Prevenex can help. Neurofi Plus is a vegan-friendly protein powder that is low in sugar, high in essential branched-chain amino acids, and contains probiotics and digestive enzymes, so it's easy to digest and doesn't cause the gassy feeling you can get with other protein powders. Neurofi Plus is laboratory-tested and contains no soy, gluten, dairy, preservatives, or artificial sweeteners. Listeners of this series can get 15% off their first-time purchase by using the code TITLE9, that's all caps and the number 9, at checkout. Just go to Prevenex.com, P-R-E-B-I-N-E-X.com, and use the code TITLE9 at checkout for 15% off your first purchase. If you don't like it, the company offers a 100% money-back guarantee on all of their products within 30 days, no questions asked. Again, use the code TITLE9 at checkout, for 15% off your first time purchase at Prevenex.com. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women and more overall diversity at our triathlons. Now keep that hand up if you want to be part of the solution. The team at Lifetime, the nation's premier healthy way of life brand, is right there with you. Their main focus? the iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon, coming up on July 24th. For this year's New York City Tri, Lifetime replaced their registration lottery, added a duathlon distance, and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers, like you, of every age, skill level, and background to take on the concrete jungle. They have women, but not enough. They have non-binary participants, but they need more. 
They have athletes from 39 states and 17 countries, but they want to cover every corner of the globe. Let's write a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today to reserve your spot to race the greatest city in the world. That's nyctri.com. Well, Celine, thank you for the wonderful interview. Yeah, it was it was interesting to me. Like she, you know, she she was so ahead of her time in so many ways. Like 40 years ago, people w- did not really train with that kind of like heart rate variability, like she was talking about. Andy Pruitt had her doing and using all these mental training techniques, like the visualization and all of that, and that she had access to it. And I couldn't really tell if that was a product of, you know, women being more accepted in these spaces or she just got lucky, but no, what, you know, whatever the case was be like, she was definitely ahead of her time in those training uh, techniques. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Or sometimes it just pays off to have that mindset of like, I'm going to train properly and I'm going to do this. And then you just go out and you find the things you need, like without that sometimes, yeah, without any thought of like what other women have access to or like whatever it is like sometimes some people just sort of get on with it she was definitely one of those people (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah there's there's a benefit pioneers come in all shapes and sizes she was definitely one that was like this is what I need and I'm just gonna drive down there and get it yeah (laughs) yeah we need those people right yeah (laughs) I love it I love it um what's up next week yeah so next week that's all right I um I interviewed Janet Cohn uh, she's the athletic director at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, and she's also much like Joan Cronin. Actually, Joan Cronin, who was on last week, um, was a mentor for Janet. She even mentions her in this interview. But I met Janet when I was in Asheville last year and right away was just like, this is one of the most impressive women I've ever met. <laughs> you oh, know, wow. like almost 70 years old, just like still so vital and active and like running her you know doing her job just I'm sure just as well as she ever did um she's been so instrumental in bringing in in um helping actually title nine be implemented in in her role as athletic director um and she definitely has like a lot of insight to like the process over the last few years of like how change has happened. Um, she also, she really interesting. This is what really caught me. She started a, a speaker series that was kind hmm. of, that was for women. So she brought in, like she brought in freaking like Billie Jean King to talk to the students, you know, not all the speakers were as big as that, but they were like, you know, she really did this great job of like providing support for the female student athletes too. Um, so it's a really That's great cool. interview. So. Come on back for that one. Nine Voices for Title IX, powered by Inside Tracker, is a feisty media production. This episode was produced and edited by the amazing Amelia Perry. 